Welcome to the C Word That Conservatives podcast. Today we're talking about bolstering business. I'm Jenny Mathiasen, an objects conservative based in Kilmarlandshire. And I'm Chloe Rumsey, an objects conservative based in Greater Manchester. Welcome to the show, everyone. It's great to be back. Welcome. Um, and we have a repeat guest host, which we're really excited about. Would you like to reintroduce yourself to our listeners? I'm Lucy Branch, a conservator of sculpture and architectural features. And uh, I run a company called Antique Bronze, which is also podcasting at the moment. Yay! So. Yay! Exciting! It's a <laughs> meeting of many podcasters. Today, I mean, this sort of came up as a conversation um, sort of by email between you and me, Lucy, and also because people were sort of curious about something that was sort of adjacent to freelancing and adjacent to the side hustle episodes, which is sort of yes conservation work that isn't bench work, but it's still conservation. And it sounds really nebulous because it sort of is, but we're going to see what we can do. We're going to talk about these other ways of sort of, um, sort of, yeah, bolstering business is what we named it on our spreadsheet, by the way. And it just kind of stuck. So apologies for the slightly <laughs> stuffy title. I'm sure I could think of something funnier, but there you go. Uh, sometimes titles aren't all that funny. <laughs> So this is using one's conservation, actual conservation as part of one's business as a conservation business rather than side hustle, which was more like uh, I also walk dogs or I also adjust clothes or do belly dancing. I just chose mine. (laughs) That sort of thing. I do think, though, that these extra things make us much more well-rounded conservators. Oh, definitely. Because we're, we're much richer for all these extras that we're bolting on to our, our professional lives, I think. It's the skills, isn't it? Yeah, I feel like I wouldn't be half the conservator I am if, if I wasn't also an insane crafty person who just loves making things. So, you know, there is that, certainly. But the thing is that I think that it's a field that's got so many aspects to it that actually the idea that there could be little prongs that go off into other directions, but from the central point, I think works really well in terms of, you know, having other dimensions to your your business and it's and or your profession. And And it certainly does make you more resilient to have other things around you because, you know, you never know what the world's going to throw at you and how and how it's going to affect your life going forward. So I think it's it's definitely even if you don't have that superpower yet, it's definitely one to be thinking about. You mean like an international pandemic? You mean? <laughs> well, yeah. Thinking about those extra ways to to use conservation, but maybe out of the box, it has to make us a more resilient profession. And it's not just, you know, oh God, I'm making it bleak immediately, but it's not just stuff like uh, the the (laughs) pandemic. You know, even before this time in our lives, uh, we were talking about things in freelance episodes, things like, um, you know, you don't always have work coming in necessarily. Sometimes there'll be a lull or something that slightly haunts me every now and then. It's like, what if I break my hand? Or like, what if I... Oh God, I have nightmares about that. Yeah. What if I can't do bench work for a little bit for some reason? Or what if I'm pregnant and I can't use all the chemicals or like yeah what what then what else can we do because that's it's just healthy to think about but also it's actually really logical because a lot of of what we do is incredibly physical and inevitably we're all going to get older and maybe not be able 
even if we don't have a catastrophe like damaging our hands, but being able to do quite such physical mm-hmm. days. And if you're maybe in a role where there is uh, a ladder that you can climb, there may be something more administrative or something less physical that you can go on to. But lots of us are not in that position. I actually look at the extra things that I do as almost like a a kind of pension for the future. I'm thinking, okay, well, it may not be very big now, it might be a little thing, but it hopefully over time will grow and therefore become something that is able to help me when I'm not that able when I'm elderly and in my dotage. (laughs) When we're old and grey. Very well put. So what do we do then? Which ones? Because so you, Lucy, sound like you've you've uh, developed quite a few ways and means. I'm thinking, I don't know. I make stuff for people, but that's not really conservation. The last thing I did was sort of some freelancing exhibitions conservation. Um, and I know Jenny's Jenny's always thinking about this sort of thing as well. So, what are our experiences? So, for me, the largest segment that has grown out of the conservation work that I do that has nothing to do with the practical mm-hmm. side is the the fiction I write novels and I Ooh. and they are all based in our world so the first series I've written I've, I've just published my fourth novel congrats the first three thank you were they were all about I had to being a metals conservator, tackle the myth of alchemy. I mean, it was absolutely essential. (laughs) Someone had to do a modern take on it. And so my world of metals, but I wanted to not so much in that first series look at conservation, but look at particularly around uh, sculpture and looking at um, patination and looking at some of the techniques that we use and foundries use and things like this and try to tie it in with a bigger theme that I felt was a more general of general interest. And at the beginning, you know, you, you start something, you don't really know what you're, you're about. But actually, the hours of conservation that I used to do when I was quiet and, and actually manually working were a great moment mm. to sort of feed the imagination. And so those books really came out of the work you know, really tangibly came out of the work that I did. And um, I've, this new series is um, is, a, is set in a restoration studio. So it's kind of more like the repair shop, but with murder <laughs> thrown in on the oh side. <laughs> and I mean, you know, is very much rooted in what we're doing and giving people this insight into our world. Because I've never met anyone that's not interested in what we do. But it's, it's, you know, I love chemistry, but people think I'm nuts. But I want to I want to explain what it is about the chemistry that we're doing in conservation that actually makes it exciting and dangerous and, and thrilling. And so that's been a really, you know, I'm I'm definitely not the first conservator to have done it, but it's definitely been a great source and it is also a great extra income uh, and hopefully will be more so in the future. That sounds wonderful. And I also really love, because we've vaguely talked about conservation featured in books or conservators in books. Conservators mm, in fiction, yeah. I think, was the exact thing. Um, a little bit in the past. And I love the notion that there's just more being made and that it's actually written by people who know what conservators are and do is better <laughs> than the alternative when someone's just like, oh, that sounds like an exotic job. I have no idea what it is and I'm not going to do any research. <laughs> 
Yeah, I mean, I think it's difficult because the problem is we love it so much and we know so much about it that, you know, it's easy to get run down a rabbit hole about you're getting really interested in the ethics behind the thing that you're talking about. And suddenly you go, hmm, maybe other people aren't quite as interested in this as I am. And, you you know, you have to be careful you're not going to actually end up boring people to death about your specific love. But actually being able to take it somewhere that maybe is more mainstream it, I think uh, it, it you know it's got to be mm. it's got to be good for people being able to access conservation as well so what are the how do people find this then I think this is a good opportunity to say what's it called and how do they find it oh um so if you, I mean any anywhere good books are sold <laughs> um no so um you can uh, Lucy Branch on Amazon or Kobo or Apple wherever you go and also there's paperbacks and things like that but um I decided to do it under my conservator's name even though I've done non-fiction as well but the thing is that people say oh don't write try to if you're going to write you know serious sort of non-fiction do it under one pen name and another under another but it's all my world it's all the things that I love so I wanted to make it obvious and that's another reason why I have actually presented it on my business website so in my blog and think the company's blog I, you know I put the books on the side because I do feel like they are directly relevant to what we do it's not a complete tangent so I feel like they've got a home there and yes it's not necessarily what you see on a museum website but then they have shops and things like that don't they so yeah, that's a, that's a very good point, actually. And it's also a good point because I do know that conservators who write fiction, although not necessarily about conservation in any shape, way or form, but they usually do so under a pen name so that they aren't associated with it, which is sort of an interesting move. And I can I can see the pros and cons. But I actually really like that you're like, no, this is what I do. It builds into this thing that this is going to sound terrible and brand imagey, but it is uh, <laughs> because it, it's, it means that people can support you um, as a, as a, exactly. as a practitioner yeah. uh, and they can mm-hmm. buy your books and, and read your fiction or they can uh, commission you for, to do the work or they can ask for your advice. Like you're kind of giving people more platforms to support you, which I think is something conservators are famously bad at. Like yeah. Conservators are like, I am here for this mystical craft that I'm not going to tell you about. Why are we so hard to find and understand? And why are we making it so hard for people to support us? It's a little bit weird. (laughs) What the fiction did for me as well was got me thinking about how I could write more informally about conservation, which Ah. the non-fiction book that I wrote last year, although it's a kind of guide or a handbook you might say but it sort of made me feel like I could write more informally about conservation and actually earn something out of it too that it it didn't have to be quite such a heavyweight item um I could sort Mm. of tell stories about ridiculous things that happened to me which is 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 really what happens in much of my work Um, (laughs) actually that side of conservation the sort of lighter side of conservation for conservators, I think is also an avenue that is something that can bolster our work and our and our incomes. I, I, we when we talked about this, I think when we when we were talking about publishing your work, that that there is this sort of expectation that it has to be 
massive and groundbreaking and really really sort of super scientific and perfect and the reality is that that's not most of our experience the value of something anecdotal even or stories about our experience or this is what I tried and it was all right it wasn't perfect but this happened is so valuable and it's something that I think we're frightened we say this a lot on this show we're (laughs) frightened to share the more casual stuff what this was really this was really about was about the fact that I get asked an awful lot of repetitive questions by clients very often similar mm. things and I thought you know what this could be useful for someone it's just this idea of isolating down things that you're doing in your everyday life that actually could have a wider purpose that could have someone else that it could be useful to and especially if it's something you're doing repetitively that that's definitely a little bell that should say this could be bigger than what you are doing with it because it's obviously relevant to more than one person and I think that's a Mm. really good indicator of where you might have um, a a different sort of uh, avenue to go down. Do we feel that this is the kind of thing that is very freelancer Um, and what sorts of things can freelancers do to 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 do this um, that maybe isn't something that's really on on the agenda of museum conservators? Mm. Yes, this is quite a freelancer heavy episode, I think. But some of the things that I guess I can mention are things that I was sort of asked to develop for a museum commercial unit, uh, in which case it was, okay, so what do you do when you don't have bench work coming in? Uh, And then wasn't there, what are you doing? Because, you know, obviously there was in-house work to do, but it was more about how do you earn money if you don't have bench work coming in at the time? So a couple of options for Mm. that. So, I mean, this is now more broadly applicable to both freelancers and, you know, anyone needing to earn Mm -hmm. money in a museum setting, I suppose, because not all conservators do. Sometimes it's in-house only and that's all good because... that's a lot too but things like that included options like bench hire what if you used to have a much larger contingency of conservators people retire they don't get it replaced Uh, if you're now a smaller team of conservators do you have a big lab for example or a big studio where there's always that extra bench where people just dump stuff because it's not really in use could you in fact hire that space out to freelancers who uh, struggle to have their own space for example it's very expensive to like pay for a workshop or a studio full time. Another thing that I remember looking at was if we could let other people use our equipment, for example. And this is particularly big, of course, for big institutions that have loads of equipment, uh, not necessarily just uh, freelancers who've bought something expensive and wanted to pay for itself. But, you know, any place that has some pieces of equipment, for example, that you know, are useful to conservatives might want to consider renting that out to people or like offering people to, okay, well, you can have it for a a week's use for a set fee um, or similar, because ultimately it would be nicer if it was free, but probably that's probably not going to be the case. But also there's an aspect there of um, training people as well, isn't there? There's an aspect of being able to offer Mm. training on that piece of equipment uh, because you don't want people yes. to go and ruin your beautiful <laughs> item that they may not no. know really the ins and outs of. Yeah, that, that's another point. And then that can, of course, be an upsell as well. You know, like, you know, we'll offer a, a day's training on it first. 
definitely a really good point, Lucy. Yeah, I think there's. I think training is one of those things that people think about um, bigger institutions doing. But we've all got lots of small skills that actually other people, especially in the conservation mm. field, how I mean, how many times you've come up against something, thought, gosh, I just wish someone could show me this, and it's not. You know, there isn't a video on YouTube by a lovely American person, which is <laughs> what they usually is. But but still, I think kind of small, more informal training and even things that are done at quite short notice um, because we're a small community it, it you can say do you know what I've got a couple of days free next week and I've and I've got this that I can show you how to do or show and, and you know even two or three people is that's enough that's definitely an income stream occasionally training is definitely something to consider uh, and that can be aimed at you know other conservators it can be friendly or informal it can be done online now because loads of us do enjoy a good webinar or uh, online course for example uh, you know we did a whole episode on uh, basically you know teaching and learning remotely and all that stuff so I kind of was looking I mean a while back now but looking at what museums do you know how they manage to fund things and and you do see that they obviously build a brand around themselves and they make money on the sides in lots of different ways by merchandising and selling things that relate to the identity of the museum and I really don't see why this isn't something that conservators can do too and I know that there's this idea that obviously if you work for an institution you may not be able to do that but I, I think in a sense what we're talking about a lot with this is an identity of something and building a brand around it and I'm not sure that you can't do that just because you necessarily work for a museum as long as you're not obviously <laughs> climbing into their patch but your field of expertise can be something that you build an identity around and merchandise and um, people do this incredibly successfully with obviously the music business and and lots of uh, people on Instagram and and YouTube in other fields so I don't see why conservators couldn't do that too so that's something that I definitely think that I'll be exploring in the future. That's so interesting. And I would love to see where you go with that. It tickles me somehow. It really does. But then I suppose as a creative, it would. <laughs> well, I can see the C word having some great merchandising items that people, again, it's this idea of being able to support your people that you want to support. And, uh, you know, going back to what you were saying earlier in the show, you know, quite often, one of my clients, I might go, above and beyond what I've I've said I'd do and I say to them things like you know just pick up one of my books you know give it to the charity shop if you don't like <laughs> it but you know that idea that they can support you in yeah. some way that is is kind of like buy me a coffee but obviously they you know you've gone back to your desks and you're not going to buy them a coffee but this having other things which are representing you that people can tip you with in a sense yeah. Taking it back to the sort of tip jar idea, because this is a thing that I see creatives do a lot. And obviously, this requires an online presence that conservatives don't necessarily have. It will depend on the conservator. But something that you see a lot for, for example, artists and uh, other creatives, musicians, for example, is if they put out content on social media, for example, like, hey, if you really like my tweets, uh, if you like, I've seen historians do it, for example, uh, if you like what I'm sharing about, uh, say, Welsh folklore, then you can put something in my tip jar. And then there's a link to not PayPal, but like a similar service uh, where you 
you can just donate something because you like their work. And that is a model that I don't think enough conservatives consider as something viable. Like people's goodwill is also a thing that can help bolster your business. And that will, you know, require a very different approach than the highly polished, hey, we are such and such limited. Yeah. We were established in the 1970s and we're, we're, we're the best ever at everything. And you can't see anything behind the scenes because we're too <laughs> posh. Okay, guys, uh, that's fine. But for other people, there, there might be an option there to instead go with uh, Kofi, for example, which is another one. What's one I use, for example, uh, which is literally the idea is you buy me a coffee. It isn't literally a coffee, but it's like it suggests spending three quid on me, which is the equivalent of buying me a coffee. Uh, digital tip jars are, you know, a genuine resource and something widely used by uh, creative people and crafts people as well. And as I mentioned, historians now. So I don't see what we can't get on board there and, and have that as a way of, hey, do you follow my content? Do you like what I put on Instagram, for example? Well, then you can support me. You know, it's easy. Uh, it'll make you feel good. <laughs> But, you know, I saw someone recently do a tour and I know, I know this is like, what, a tour, live events, but it was outdoors. The thing is, something they did, which was really clever and struck me at the end, it was a free thing and they were passing around the hat at the end. But what they said specifically, which I thought was clever, was, you know, if you feel like my performance is worth £20, then it would be fantastic for you to show me. But I'm really happy if you just, you know, want to you know, pass the word around for more people to join the, the tour at another time. But the fact that they mm. actually planted a seed with the money that they wanted actually to be it, it. Lots of people don't know what to tip. They need that guidance. They think, well, I'm not sure what this content is worth. What is it worth? If you're brave enough to drop that seed in and say, maybe better than the way I put it, they were very good the way they said it, but they told people what they were actually after and how much they felt they were worth. And it really helps yeah. people. And, you know, people are like, yeah, great, fine, no problem, took it straight out of their wallet. This sort of thing is quite a big deal in belly dancing professionally for a British audience. Oh. Different audiences have a different understanding of tipping the belly dancer. Turkish audience far more used to this. But if you're in a, an audience of all British people, they think that it's rude and they, they don't know how to tip. Like, is it OK to tuck the money into the dancer's costume? <laughs> how much money? How, is, it, is a fiver insulting? Is, is, what do you do? And so in the past, I've, <laughs> I've like... You New Year's Eve when I've had several gigs I've left the money tucked in my costume so that the next people so they can see that right. that's what you can do oh that's uh, on one occasion I actually just gave a friend who was who was watching me dance money so that they could tuck it into my costume and then everybody else started tipping me it was great that's yeah. actually phenomenal it's almost that's... the same thing yeah. but far more sleazy sounding <laughs> but it's the same thing it's the same core concept and that's so important it's just that people need to feel like they have permission exactly it's much like you shouldn't start with an empty donation box you should have a couple of coppers rattling around in it yeah but this, this goes way back to like our funding episode because we were talking about museum funding and like museum oh, totally. museum yeah, donation yeah, boxes totally. and how it should have like a a call to action like support us with five pounds you know like suggest a donation mm. uh, not actually mm. you have to give us five pounds because that's wrong tip jars and things like that they are underused and underrated because they are brilliant ideas and they needn't be tucked into your lab coat 
Something I had considered was things like, uh, you know, sometimes you have to like bulk buy supplies and equipment to get a good price and stuff. And and sometimes people won't even consider selling you something less than 100 meters of something, you know, or like something ludicrous. Oh, yeah, I've had that before. It's ridiculous. Yeah. And it's it's a real problem, right? Especially if you're, you know, if you're running your own tiny business and you're like, Jesus, I need five meters, not 100. What do you do with the rest? (laughs) Like, yes, it might be you for a future thing but it's a big outlay uh, but you know it's it's one of those things of if you can find someone else to either clump together with you know to just be like do you want to go half these on this then then that's an option or you can depending on what it is because it certainly won't work for everything you might be able to sort of portion it up and sell it later uh, to other people in a similar situation who are like i need five meters not a hundred i'm just saying there's probably loads of room there for like maybe getting some of your money back for having bought something in huge bulk. This is something that as conservators having a little bit of a chemistry background is actually really more accessible to us I think than many people so I've noticed that on Amazon you know if you want to buy a little bit of acrylic wax you know it's like 30 pounds for a teeny tiny jar and I'm thinking well actually Mm. you know because we're using waxes all the time and things like that we're we're sort of like it seems Mm. like it's a really specialist item but it really isn't a specialist item at all so I think our understanding of materials as well I think is is wider there are lots of applications for materials that we use in conservation that we particularly in the craft and arts field that actually are quite scarce hard to get hold of for some people and and I think there's definitely a competitive edge there so I think I'm I'm intrigued by more of your out of the box thinking. What other things have you considered? When I began to go into the fiction and learn all about, you know, publishing and the, all about the different aspects to that, that enabled me to learn more things like about how to podcast and how to market and how to so it, ah. th- from from that one thing definitely more skills grew which were completely applicable to my conservation business and you know I mean you can even go back to things like blogging and and how to present a professional website and all of those things if you're an independent conservator you need to have a really good website and that's a portal Mm. for you to have your service obviously go out into the world but it's also something you have to pay quite a lot of money to get looked after by someone and learning those skills means that you know essentially you're saving money on that front and they are totally learnable by by any stretch of the imagination so yeah I mean the out of the box thinking I think more means that um, I've been able to add say a digital side of my company which didn't exist Mm -hmm. before We had an awful lot of skills that were sort of all kind of batched into one category. And what I tried to do is separate out the strands of what we did and look at how each one of those could be developed as a broader income stream. So it was sort of like um, untangling what was a bit of a ball of wool because uh, historically the way that we'd grown was just that it had served a very specific type of uh, model, which as 
times evolved and things went on didn't make sense anymore. And so this idea of looking at each part of the business and saying, well, how can that, what what would be applicable to that? And I mean, I do that every single year. I say, right, what other markets could this serve? Even though we are conservators, I mean, we serve quite a lot of artists and they may be, um, it's not necessarily conservation work, it's original finish work, but our skills are absolutely the same, whether we're doing the original finish or mm. whether we are conserving that finish later on. And actually it works perfectly because the person, you know, who has the object made will then want the object conserved because you've had the platform to talk about how to do that and what the object needs. So actually coming in at an earlier stage makes complete sense, not only as a business model, but also for the for the health of the object in the future. So that may be a slightly more entrepreneurial aspect to the way that that we certainly work. There's so many areas because you could you could look at, you know, trillion times a day people are asking me about the materials that we use and they want they want specifically what brushes what this what that and all of these areas if if I had enough time in the day you could grow that field and say right I can recommend these and therefore maybe be an affiliate for that company that you really think is an excellent brush maker or an excellent wax supplier but again that's about it it all knits together it's about cultivating a brand and trust and and a feeling that you are you are doing good work and it all comes from the conservation. I really like that because it's sort of just holistic thinking about how to run a business. And it's it's great because that's just you're just offering more. It, it's just good business, which sounds really dirty, but you know, it is. Well, I don't know. For me, business and conservation are not two separate things. Um, I remember many years mm. ago, uh, someone saying to me, um, you know, oh, oh, you know, don't you think that's um, the fact you're making a profit out of this is kind of unethical? And I thought, no, I don't. Um, <laughs> I feel, I feel like, I feel like I'm doing, I'm trying to do my best. And yes, I am obviously, you know, paying my bills with that. But the fact is that. If you pay attention to a job and you reflect on it, which is all part of our professional development, right? We should all be thinking about the job the job that's just happened. Yeah. You notice things. You think, right, that client asked about this or they didn't understand that. And I constantly think, you know, how could I make that, you know, more useful to people? But also, yes, my time is going to be covered by that. Uh, whether it's saying oh, gosh, that client was really interested in the history of that object. Is there other people that are interested in the history of that object? And could I present something for them? And it may only be a tiny stream of income, a little bit of work that you've done. But each one of those micro streams then builds on another one and gives you an opportunity to, what's the word, cross-pollinate to other areas. So, um, yeah. I don't see entrepreneurship as being, I don't know, unethical or not part of conservation. Something that I wish I could see more people explore, and I'm strongly considering exploring myself, is just showing a bit more vulnerability uh, as professionals. I see all these, you know, wonderful people on, for example, YouTube, not conservatives, but, you know, in not totally crazy fields. You know, something 
maybe craft based or something who are just pursuing what they love they are doing it for money because they are running a business but if you can't afford to buy their sculpture for six thousand pounds then you can give them a fiver a month just to say that i love what you do keep sharing it with me because it enriches my life. I hope that we can move to a world where conservators can do something similar, where we can share what we do and people can, we allow people to appreciate it and don't just kind of mantle around it and go, nobody must see what I do because what's the point? Surely we want to share these things. We're nerds for goodness sake. Nerds love sharing <laughs> what they do and what they love. So I, I think if we can embrace that, there's actually a lot of potential for there to be income streams from it. One of the thing, areas that really interests me when I was on, when I was, it got me thinking when I saw this uh, gentleman doing this uh, performance was just this idea of tours. Like there's so, it's a huge industry when there's a, you know, when people are allowed to do events is taking tours around cities and things like that. And actually, I think conservation tours could be another great stream of income, particularly if you are knowledgeable about a field, because it just shows you the repair shop and all these other great programs that are on have a huge audience and people want to learn about it. And it's not just museums who necessarily have the dominance over that. I think that and it's again, it's that support. It's supporting the creator theme. They are your your time is being supported by it and it's what you know. So I, I think that it works really well for conservation, that that exact business model. There's one thing I think as well about the current time that is that particularly is brought to mind from what you're saying about tours and and what you're saying about craft in the public eye, Jenny, is that I feel that we've sort of lost track of how much free content there is on the internet, whether it's video or audio or photographs or you know an artwork that we can't have in our houses and. That stuff that people, they say, oh, subscribe to my channel or support me on Patreon. Huge numbers of people don't. And I, the number of hours of YouTube that I watch and I don't pay for anything of what I'm enjoying or whatever. And belly dancers on Instagram, I'm not paying them, but they're still sort of putting out content and they're still kind of entertaining me. I totally agree that there's a way that conservation can sort of I don't want to say get in on that because it depends entirely on somebody's own sort of expertise and comfort and um, you know what they're what they feel that they want to provide but you know yeah I mean the the thing is though that when there's a a situation where you are in business whatever that business is whether it's um, the kind that we're talking about now or more general there is a huge amount of work you do for for nothing for no pay anyway so whether yeah. or not you're putting content yeah. on to YouTube for free, you know that you're going to do a huge amount of work and only some of it will actually manifest into an income stream. And there's just, you, you have to know that if you're in business. I quote on tons of work, at, which Absolutely. I don't get. And I have a gazillion <laughs> conversations with people. <laughs> but what I do hope is you may not place the job with me this time, but maybe you'll remember me. And that's a tiny seed dropped yeah. in. And I, and I always look at every job like that. I think, well, you know, maybe something will come of it one day. Yeah. Yeah. The only problem is when other people come back and they expect you to remember them and you don't. <laughs> <laughs> 
but you know, so so the point isn't necessarily that you you that you will be paid for everything that you put out. That's not no. true at all. And as you say, we all enjoy content for free that we're not going to pay for. Mm. But the thing is that you give people the option, and some people will take yeah. up on that offer, which is much like the tour. Some people will put money in that bag or hat or whatever it was, uh, but. Some people won't. And I mean, a large part of why I don't pay for content is just because I'm poor myself and I'm not in a position where I can give anyone anything. But those people may in turn be more likely to recommend your work or say, I went to this amazing thing or... Uh, have you ever considered this person for that? They may instead be the pe- people who become advocates for you. So what about live events? I mean, has the C word considered doing a big live event? I mean, that's a great way of making an income stream, ticket sales. We have. <laughs> we have, but it, it was sort of pootled along in a sort of, wouldn't it be scary if we did this and also fun and then pandemic? But we do want, we really want to do a conference. We'd love to do a live streamed, um, love to do a live streamed episode and get loads of people involved. Yeah, no, it's definitely stuff that we've talked about for sure. Um, always open to suggestions as well. And uh, I'm, I'm quite happy just to hang out with people as well uh, because that's just nice. Yeah, exactly. Uh, so, you know, it doesn't all have to be money makers. But, but, you know, not to be the psychologist here, but, you know, we shouldn't have hang ups about money. It doesn't make us bad people just because, you know, what we're trying to, to live. Yeah, that's the thing. But seriously, something to think about, maybe as conservatives, you know, that there are other mm. ways that we can approach this. We can look to um, fellow people in adjacent fields because I don't see why, um, you, you know, it, I feel like when when people think of influencers and stuff using these platforms, you know, people think of like makeup artists or uh, I don't know, people who do loads of yoga on mountaintops or something. I don't know, but like they, <laughs> they but they fail to consider usually that no, that there are loads of people doing this who do jobs that. Um, you maybe don't snare at so much like historians and craftspeople mm, and yeah. like, so there's yeah. no reason why conservatives can't join those ranks and maybe we already have it's just i don't know of them yeah i'm just saying it's it's not dirty and again money is not a dirty word and business isn't a dirty word so those are perhaps the takeaways from this <laughs> So today I've found myself a familiar voice uh, that you may in fact recognise from some of other episodes. Would you like to introduce yourselves to our listeners? Hello, I'm Lorraine. I'm a freelance conservator. Hello, Lorraine. Welcome back. Thank you very much. (laughs) Nice to be back. So in this episode, we've talked about ways of sort of bolstering business as conservators, sort of alternative income streams. And I just thought I'd have a cup of coffee with you and pick your brains about it, because it's always nice to hear someone else's perspective as, you know, another freelancer. Um, It's it's, it's just nice. (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, I, I know that this is something that you and I have sort of vaguely talked about before, like other ways of sort of earning money and stuff. Yeah, so a few years ago, I was part of a programme called Star East, which has unfortunately ended now as a programme, but all of their resources are still available. And I was able to get some one-to-one mentoring where looking at what I was doing and the bench work, which was the main source of my income, it wasn't the most efficient way of earning money, nor the way that I was working that was making the most money. Now, I'm not saying that the work is all about making money, but this is what this conversation was around, about pivoting the business. So the mentor that I spoke to, a lady called um, Mita, she gave me an exercise to do, which was to look at 
where my income sources were. And that made me think about where that income was coming from, which I had always had in my head, but writing it down on paper made a really big difference. So although the majority of my work came from doing bench work, it wasn't bringing in the most income. Where I was earning more money was things like training and workshops and doing preservation surveys and audits, so the consultancy. So that put me on a path of thinking about what, as a conservator, practical conservator, other things that I could offer that would um, allow me to have more variety. And I would also say resilience within the business, because had I not done that a couple of years before COVID hit, I probably wouldn't have had any income during 2020. Yeah. Because at, at the start of COVID, all of my practical work just disappeared. It just went overnight. As soon as that announcement was made for the first lockdown, the practical work just went that really has not come back. We're now in 2021. What did continue was the work that I was doing as an assessor, the work that I was doing for training and workshops, the work that I'm doing around digital transformation with a, an organisation in Canada called Dance Collection Dance. So all of that continued, but the practical work didn't. So pivoting the business, looking at other ways that I could work. Um, different things that I could do has made a really big difference. And I have to say, I'm the sort of person that loves doing lots of different stuff anyway. So only doing one thing does not play to my strengths. <laughs> yeah. what, plays, what plays to my strengths is doing lots of different things mm. and having sort of 10 or 15 projects on the go at the same time, which is usually the way it is. So my business now is more around um, training and workshops. It's around preservation, so the consultancy, environmental sustainability. So actually going in to do audits around environmental sustainability and digital transformation. And one of the one of the other things that I've found a really useful exercise is to list down and just mind dump onto a piece of paper 20 or 30 things that you do as a conservator. So that could be writing reports. So you've got a writing skill. It could be um, communication so that you have to talk to people on Skype um, and put forward uh, your ideas for treatment. It could be that you do your own accounts or you do your budget at work. So you've got um, numeracy skills. So sit down and list all of the skills that you have and then and just mind dump it. Don't think about what you're writing. Just put them down. Try and aim for about 30. Then go back and look at which ones are transferable. When I did this, there was only one that wasn't a transferable skill. Now, that's not to say that you go off and you find your job in yourself a job in accountancy, which might be what you want to do. And if that's what you want to do, then go for it. But it helps you think, OK, well, I can do this, this and this. So what within cultural heritage world, the museum sector, the archive sector, wherever you work, uses those skills? And how can I use that skill to do other things? Exactly. And I think that's a really positive way of thinking about it because it, I think as conservatives we get really caught up in the sort of bench work it's the holy grail it is everything that I want to do and like it's fine if it is but also sometimes bench work dries up and that would have you know happened even in, in non-pandemic times there would be lulls mm. for example it's not unheard of the people are busy all of the time but also that's not the norm I would say I think that's you know quite rare that people just always have something to work on it's grand if you if you are listening to this and you're that person bravo bravo clap uh, however um <laughs> that's maybe not the case for everyone and thus it's really healthy to look at what other skills you have and then you can always find someone else to talk to 
uh, and bounce ideas with if you feel like it's an overwhelming list or even if you find that you might be struggling with thinking of good things to write on that list and maybe maybe find someone you work closely with or um, a fellow conservator who's in a similar position and just you know talk about your different strengths and things that maybe they see in you I think that might be a really positive Mm. way forward as well. Yeah, I think definitely what other people see in you, because we are usually our own worst critics. And actually having somebody else look at what you do and speak about what you do. It's so nice because they're usually so complimentary and they're so they look at what you do and they see it in a completely different light. Mm. And then, you know, again, these can be just more strings to your fiddle, essentially. Uh, so if, you know, if if you're working freelance, then, you know, it's just as you you have a wider offer and that's not a bad thing and ultimately I think uh, this sort of exercise I'm hoping will give you confidence because look at all the things that you are good at you know it's not all about the perfect eye for color matching that I don't know, piece of fabric um, I don't know what you do <laughs> dear listener I do not know what you do but that's fine it's great that we have all these hyper-specific hand skills, but it's also great that we have loads of other skills that we really undervalue, I would say. Mm. I was going to say, I think one of the ones we, we really downplay is our ability to problem solve. Absolutely. And that's like my favourite thing about conservation. We're great problem solvers. Yeah, we're amazing problem solvers. We, we look at an object, we start the treatment, we, we come up with a, a variety of ideas about what the object needs and how we're going to do that, and why the object needs that then generally we start a treatment and you'll find, you know, not every treatment does this, but some do. You'll get through it and it's not going the way you want or your, the results aren't what you want or the object is just saying that's not appropriate. So halfway through a treatment, you change what you're doing and you're constantly problem solving. And I feel we don't see that within ourselves, our ability to problem solve. I, th- I mean, arguably, it's one of our superpowers. Yeah, I guess there's just so much that we we can do if we if we just sort of not step away completely from the bench, but just sort of look up and go, what else is there that I do really well? Because there's bound to be loads. Uh, don't feel mm. disheartened just because work has dried up. There are there are so many things that you can do and that can then keep you going until your next hands-on job that might be the thing that you really really desire to do. Um, so just saying, there's there's hope out there, guys. <laughs> Oh, there's definitely hope out there. I mean, there, there, there's always ways to to take your skills, you know, look at your skills and, and think I'm this brilliant person, which you are, and find other ways to use them. Yeah, absolutely. So chin up, guys. It's going to be OK. <laughs> <laughs> it's going to be fine. If you're enjoying the C word and would like to support our work, then please consider becoming one of our patrons. For as little as $1 per month, you can help us keep our episodes online and more of them coming. Patreon helps us meet our regular costs for the show, and also to plan ahead so we know roughly how much of a monthly budget we've got. That's super helpful when you're trying to do something special like buy a better microphone or save up to go to a special event. Your support also helps keep us free of advertisements. In return, our supporters get access to our archive of extended episodes, which you can only access on our Patreon page. Yeah, for that $1 a month, you get a little extra audio enjoyment. We've crunched the numbers, and it's about 10% extra content on a regular basis. That's not bad for less than a cup of coffee, eh? If supporting us sounds like something you'd like to do, then head over to patreon.com slash the C word and join our bunch of absolute champions. Thanks for listening. 
With the C word, and you'll be listening to Lucy Branch, Chloe Rumsey, and me, Jenny Thiasson. Join us next time for an episode about dyes. In the meantime, check out our website at theseaword.show, tweet us at theseawordpodcast, or simply email us on theseawordpodcast at gmail.com. The intro and outro music is Spring by Didi Music, used under a Creative Commons Attribution License. Additional music and sound effects by Callum Robertson. This has been a Wooden Dice production. I don't know what, I'm getting a puppy on Friday and I don't know what recording is going to be like with a puppy. <laughs> it's going to be chaos. Not great. Yeah. <laughs> It'd be fine. We'll just have to have puppy, uh, puppy breaks. But but now now the pre- now the pressure is on to have a conservation based name like this is my puppy paraloid. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god, that's such a great idea. <laughs> We've already chosen the name. It is, isn't it? Hi, this is Clusel. Oh, oh. oddly tickled by that now. <laughs> you can't scream that in the park, can you? <laughs> People be like, what? It would be Lloyd for short. It'd be fine. <laughs>